Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Barfoot. The political radicals who mobilized China's communist revolution didn't intend to create a society in which the ultra-wealthy enjoy lives of great luxury, while millions of rural workers struggle in poverty. However, one of the striking features of modern China is a stark wealth gap. About a thousand people have fortunes worth more than a billion dollars, according to the magazine Forbes. And even though, by many measures, the income gap between urban and rural China is narrowing, there are still parts of the country which seem largely unchanged by the benefits of development. This appears to irritate Xi Jinping. Last year, he declared that we cannot allow the gap between the rich and the poor to continue growing. We cannot permit the wealth gap to become an unbridgeable gulf. So how is China tackling inequality? Is its communist leadership doing any better than the governments of other countries with large wealth gaps, such as South Africa, Brazil or Indonesia? Well, I'm delighted to welcome back to the podcast today the director of the SOAS China Institute, Professor Steve Sang. Now, I'd like to take you back in time a bit and ask you to think about the period in which you were growing up in Hong Kong. When you looked at society, did you notice a great gap between the rich and the poor? And was this something that troubled you or did you just see it as being the natural order of things? Well, when I grew up in Hong Kong, um, Hong Kong certainly suffered from great inequality of wealth. But the Hong Kong I grew up in was a British crown colony. So it was not exactly something that I was all that surprised that there were huge gaps in wealth and in income amongst people in Hong Kong. And there's the gap really was not just between the um, white settlers of Hong Kong and the um, indigenous Chinese population of Hong Kong. It's just even within the Chinese community in Hong Kong, there were huge gap of wealth. Now it didn't completely surprise me. And it was only after I uh, became a teenager and read about the Chinese communist revolution that I thought this is something that would not happen on the mainland of China since the communist party had one power in China. Now that was my view as a young teenager in Hong Kong. Well, turning to the present day then, when you look at modern society in China and also Hong Kong and Macau, and indeed the whole Pearl River Delta, is your view of wealth inequality now different to that that you held as a teenager? Um, and is that because of a change in the situation or has your perception changed? Now, I was a teenager in Hong Kong in the 1970s, and that was the time when China underwent from the Maoist era into the post-Mao era. And from the perspective of a young Hong Kong teenager, for all that one could say negatively about the Maoist era, my first experience of the PLC would suggest that actually there wasn't that much of wealth inequality. Well, at least not that a visitor could see because everybody were poor. Now, of course, except 
for the few very privileged uh, senior officials who had access to luxuries that normal people did not have. But you did not have the phenomenal wealth gap that we see in China today, or the wealth gap that existed in colonial Hong Kong in the 1970s or the 1980s. And if the wealth gap in Hong Kong in the colonial era was bad, the wealth gap in socialist China today makes it look like it wasn't that bad in Hong Kong after all. And that is how much things have changed. China changed phenomenally since the end of the Maoist era. It made huge progress in all sorts of areas, but not in terms of the social equality. Do you think the difficulties faced by people on lower incomes, I'm still talking about Hong Kong here, do you think that was a major factor in the protests which took place in 2019? Because a lot of people have said to me, actually, they were triggered by economic frustration as much as by political reasons. No, I don't think the 2019 protests in Hong Kong were triggered because of the uh, wealth gap in Hong Kong. I think there was an economic reason behind some of those protesters. It was the uh, disappearance or the belief, the perceived disappearance of opportunities in Hong Kong. The Hong Kong I grew up in, the Hong Kong of the 1970s, the 80s, through into the 90s of the British era, was a Hong Kong of tremendous opportunities. That the bright young things of Hong Kong, from however disadvantaged of a background, would be able to rise up and become very successful, and in some cases, extremely wealthy. I mean, some of your well-known, uh, phenomenally wealthy individuals of Hong Kong, like Li Ka-shing. Li Ka-shing was just a small business person in the 1960s, making plastic flowers. And he would become the richest man of Hong Kong and one of the richest men in the whole of Asia, all within his lifetime. Um, but by 2019, there were a lot of people in Hong Kong, including graduates from the top universities who were beginning to feel that job opportunities for them were disappearing. And a lot of them were going to new immigrants from the mainland of China. And they feel very frustrated by that. They felt that they as Hong Kong people should have a right to the kind of future that their parents' generations had, which they thought they were losing. But above all, the 2019 protest was political. It wasn't really primarily economic. Now, we had a guest on this podcast recently who told us that income inequality is the biggest risk to political stability in China. It was a striking comment but I did think about this afterwards, Steve, and I wondered whether it was actually a result of her own ideology. I mean, when you were talking about um, income inequality earlier, you said it's very bad. Um, and I think our guest there would be described as a, a liberal left winger. And from the, from the perspective of someone on the left, a glaring wealth gap is a sign of greed. It's corruption. It's a moral failure. It's bad. 
However, in terms of political risk, I'm not so sure. I'm inclined to think that many countries can survive politically for long periods with a wide gap between the rich and the poor. In other words, it doesn't always end in a revolution, does it? It doesn't always mean that people erect guillotines and uh, chop off the heads of the bourgeoisie. But what about China? Does the Chinese Communist Party perceive it as a risk? It's very good question. And I think both you and the other guests on the podcast were right. I think what you had to say does reflect a strong element of reality, but it doesn't necessarily result in her conclusion that the enormous wealth gap in China would create a kind of, if you like, revolutionary environment that will result in an uprising of the masses against the ruling Communist Party. Now, having said that, I think the Communist Party is well aware of that and the party is doing everything to make sure no such uprising can arise. And the party is doing it both by substantially investing in internal security, improving constantly the capacity of the state's control over society so that such protests cannot be organized and if they were being organized would be suppressed very quickly. And at the same time, under Xi Jinping, he is also trying to uh, address the issue in a more positive way with his so-called common co the common prosperity program. Now, what is interesting about the common prosperity program Xi Jinping has produced is that even though we're talking about China as a socialist country with the world's most powerful Leninist party state in place, and therefore in the best place positioned to simply do direct redistribution of income or wealth, it doesn't do so. Instead, it comes up with a more populist approach to narrow the gap between the wealthy and the poor and make the party state appear like a Robin Hood type of figure in robbing the rich to get them to uh, redistribute some of their wealth to the poor through philanthropic donations. Um, this is, I think, what is so remarkable and interesting about Xi Jinping's approach to it. Yes, he's certainly not trying to create a welfare state, is he? Uh, trying to uh, increase taxes on the rich. I think it's a very important point that you make about common prosperity, Steve, that it's uh, pushing the big companies into making philanthropic donations uh, to charity, as it were, but the charity is then going to be handled by the Chinese Communist Party. So it is a funny way to tackle inequality, isn't it? Well, it is indeed a very funny way to tackle uh, poverty and the wealth gap. And you are absolutely right that Xi Jinping has made it very clear. Welfareism is not part of common prosperity. And people in China must realize that the party can't do everything in reducing inequality, but the party will do high profile things 
to make people feel that the party is bidding for them, fighting for them. And that's why there was all this pressure being put on the um, successful entrepreneurs to give money to good causes. And of course, what is interesting also is that China has a large number of state-owned enterprises and some of the biggest corporations in China remain state-owned enterprises. And state-owned enterprises are not required to commit to the philanthropic cause that Xi Jinping advocates. It's only the private enterprises and the private entrepreneurs who are required to do so. So the party remains in charge, but it is not a full program of socialism in spite of China being a Marxist-Leninist system. So do you think China will ever really become a socialist society then? I think something like this depends on the kind of time frame you have in mind. I tend to think that human beings eventually all want the same things. And what human beings ultimately want is a combination of uh, democracy and socialism some element of social democracy where people have their say, can hold the government accountable and also see society being more or less equal. But to be honest, I think we are still in the process of building that in the UK. I don't think we are quite there fully yet. And there are still a lot of problems there. So even the Scandinavian countries, one would say so. Uh, U.S. is way, quite a bit behind us, and China is a very, very, very long way behind in this progression. I would choose not to believe that people in China would not ultimately want that. But in the short term, they won't. In the short term, they will do what the party state asked them to do and require them to do. Because when Xi Jinping requests he actually requires. Well, I find your political theories very interesting, Steve. Perhaps you should write a manifesto. <laughs> that was Professor Steve Sang, director of the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London, which produces this podcast. And you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team.